Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, across the country, this is the time of year that students are prepping for advanced placement exams in various topics. Here on American History TV, we're going to take a look at the advanced placement U.S. history exam. Joining us, Jason Stacy of Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville and Matt Ellington of Ayala High School in Chino Hills, California, Gentlemen, what exactly is the Advanced Placement History Exam, and, and who administers it? Well, uh, Peter, thanks for having us on your show today. Uh, the Advanced Placement U.S. History Exam is a capstone exam for the AP U.S. History course. It's an opportunity for students in high school to take a college-level course and then demonstrate some of those proficiencies in terms of their content and skills on a pretty rigorous Exam. It's a three-hour and 15-minute exam with a multiple-choice, short-answer, document-based essay question, and long essay question format. It's meant to approximate a final exam in terms of covering content and skills for a two-semester college survey course. So as such, it's a pretty challenging course, but it's a, it's a rewarding course, and uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of students take the APUS history exam every year across the globe. Well, Professor Stacy, how did you and Mr. Ellington get together on this? Well, I started as an AP U.S. history teacher uh, years ago, and I taught AP U.S. history for about uh, eight years. And uh, I also did some work for uh, the college board helping score the exams and uh, leading some of the tables that scored the exam and even helping write some of the questions. And a few years ago, I was approached by uh, Bedford Freeman Worth Publishers uh, to work on a textbook that was aimed specifically at the AP U.S. history class and to help prepare students for the exam. And one of the important uh, elements of that is that I wanted to work with someone who still uh, worked in the AP U.S. history classroom. By that time, uh, I'd finished my Ph.D. and I was working at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And though I had experience with AP U.S. history, both teaching the class and uh, preparing questions for the exam and scoring the exam, I thought really to have some authenticity to the textbook, Fabric of a Nation, uh, it, it'd be important that we work with an uh, AP U.S. history teacher who is experienced and also had experience uh, scoring the exam. And uh, Matt Ellington just brings a wealth of experience uh, as a teacher, uh, and as an evaluator of the exam itself. And so uh, when the press recommended that I work with Matt, I'd known Matt uh, through my work uh, helping score exams, and I just thought it was a great idea, and it's been a great partnership so far. So, Matt Ellington, your book, Fabric of a Nation, is it a study guide for kids taking the AP history exam? Um, no, actually, it is a comprehensive textbook. It's a little bit of a briefer narrative based on a, in a college textbook that what we've done, Jason and I, is we've adapted that narrative to make sure that it's accessible for high school students. And we've added a lot of pedagogy or skill-building exercises because the APUS history exam asks students to not only know two semesters worth of college-level content, but then it, it tests them on really specific historical thinking skills. And so we were determined to help create a textbook that was a little bit briefer than average because it is a lot to ask high school students to read, was accessible, still had the scholarship, 
and then layered in the documents that they, that they need to get a fuller understanding of history and the skills and practices so that they can learn to think critically and think like a historian. So it, it is, a, it is a, a full textbook, but it's a little bit different than other textbooks on the market. Gentlemen, one of the things I noted in the AP history exam is the time period, how you divide up time periods. We're going to show those on the screen. Why was this important to include this? Are these eras in American history? Well, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, first off, the, the, the AP U.S. history exam in the course has been around for decades, for over 50 years. And it is a true survey course that starts kind of at the beginning of, of American history with, with Columbus sailing across, technically the year before 1491, all the way to the present, or at least through the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. Now, College Board, when they redesigned the course a few years ago, decided to uh, break the course into units in order to make it more manageable for teachers and students and to help kind of shape a narrative. Our textbook, Fabric of a Nation, does follow that unit structure, but kids don't have to um, compartmentalize their learning or be overly dependent on the unit structure. The unit structure is in place to help identify some key turning points and also to help students understand the weighting of the exam. So on that slide, there are nine units, and the first and the last unit are worth about... 5% of the exam, between 4 to 6% of the exam. That's 1491 to 1607 and 1980 to present. The second unit, 1607 to 1754, is about 6 to 8% of the exam. And the remaining units, units 3 through 8, which is 1754 to 1980, is over 80% of the exam. So that's another way to help students by informing them the the amount of weight that they should spend in terms of their review and preparation. It also helps teachers as well to structure the course and make sure that they're emphasizing the most important developments in American history. And those time periods, Peter, are also really useful because those dates are significant as milestones in the narrative of U.S. history. So as we get closer to the exam this year, students can use those time periods and the dates within each time period to remind themselves of some of those key turning points, like Matt said. So for example, 1491 to 1607, 1491 being the uh, year before uh, Europeans, uh, specifically Columbus, first arrive in the Western Hemisphere. So students are going to have to know, even though it's a small portion of the exam, they should be cognizant of the civilizations that predate uh, contact in 1492. Likewise, 1607 is the first founding of uh, English colonies, a first permanent colony in North America that eventually become the 13 colonies that then, uh, during the independence movement, uh, declare their independence and uh, become the United States. Again, in period two, 1754 is the beginning of the French and Indian War, also known in Europe as the Seven Years' War. And historians generally consider that the beginning of what became the revolutionary era, culminating in independence. So those time periods, the dates and those time periods are significant as well. And as we get closer to the test, students can really use those to jog their memory about key milestones in U.S. history. Well... Professor Stacy, you've mentioned that uh, you've graded exams in the past. Do you find any trends where a majority of students do better in this time period and worse in this time period? I do. Uh, Some time periods are very tough for students. So, you know, the period that runs roughly from um, the end of the Civil War Uh, through the early 20th century, uh, sometimes called the Gilded Age, is a very complicated period, and students sometimes struggle with that period uh, because there are no large wars or figures that they easily remember. The presidents can be a little bit um, hard to distinguish from each other, but there are enormous changes going on in that period that are a little more abstract, economic changes, social changes, cultural changes. Another time period that's difficult for students uh, is the time period about the first, about the 30 years before the Civil War, the antebellum era, uh, really running from uh, 1800 to 1848 uh, in the time periods. 
uh, again, a period of great economic, social, cultural changes um, that uh, are often difficult for students to uh, recall those key milestones to help them uh, navigate that big time period. And Matt Ellington, that pre and post Civil War period it is really important though for what occurred during the Civil War and what happened after, correct? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, the Civil War is a defining war in American history and a, a war where we went to war against ourselves over various issues, particularly slavery. And so, yes, as, as Jason said, understanding the, the, the changes that take place um, during the antebellum era, some of those social, political, economic changes, and then, of course, what happens after the war with increased industrialization, the attempt to reconstruct the South, th those are critically important. But, again, that's just one part of the AP U.S. history exam. If you look at at, at, at the way the exam is structured, a good part of the exam is actually in the 20th century units um, 7, 8, and 9, which started in 1890 and take us all the way to uh, the present, or at least through 9-11. That's almost half of the test right there. So as important as the earlier stuff is, students have to make sure that they're, they're balancing their approach to studying to make so that they encompass all of these time periods. Well, we want to show an image, and this is from your book, Fabric of a Nation, and it's an image that represents a time period, and it's a teapot. What are we looking at here, gentlemen? Uh, well, this is a very, very interesting artifact, Peter. And when students uh, see an artifact like this, it can also be considered what historians call a primary source or an object from the time period. It contains information about a time period and the context around it that is significant for students. In fact, this is an artifact that has appeared on the APUS history test before. And an important part of understanding an artifact like this is for students to look at the source information. So if I recall, this uh, document, this artifact, uh, is produced between uh, 1766 and 1770, and it was produced in England. So this is an import into the British North American colonies. But notice the teapot has uh, two statements on it. Now, I don't have the uh, document here in front of me in this studio, so Peter, you can give me the exact quotes on it, but I believe uh, one side of it says, No Stamp Act. Correct. And the other side of it says something like American freedom restored. Is that America right? liberty restored? Good. Well, thank you for well, that. So, so you, get a, you get a B on that, Professor. Well, thanks. Good. So, so what we see here is a, an artifact that comes after the first uprising in the British colonies against British uh, tax laws or mercantile laws. And in this case, it's the famous Stamp Act, one of the first acts passed by Parliament that affected the colonies in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. And the, for the students who have taken AP U.S. history, you probably remember that the Stamp Act caused a lot of um, um, anger on the part of the colonists, and eventually it was repealed. And when it was repealed, it was the first example of the uh, British government uh, really recognizing some of the anger on the part of colonists uh, against Parliament's uh, control, virtual representation. And this uh, artifact was produced uh, for colonial consumption to celebrate the British repealing the Stamp Act. But what's also very interesting about this document is this artifact is notice it was produced in England. And it's important to understand that the British colonies, uh, especially those in the middle and upper classes, were consumers of British-made goods. So you have a British manufacturer producing a good, celebrating an American uprising against British law. And then Americans are purchasing this as part of a celebration of the repeal of that law. And this reminds us just how close the economic ties were between Great Britain and their American colonies, and also reminds us with the Stamp Act revolts in 1765, we're still about 10 years out 
from the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, and so there are still very, very close economic ties between these people separated by the Atlantic, but unified in economic terms and by language that are beginning to conflict with each other in 1766 and after. So, Matt Ellington, mm -hmm. could this teapot be compared to maybe a campaign poster today or even a television commercial promoting an, an issue? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think there's one can definitely make make that comparison. Now, students might not be asked to compare across such a wide kind of time frame on the AP U.S. History exam, but looking at the 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 message and the implication of the message and connecting that to the events in the time period and how it's designed to to have a point of view. Of course, students could could definitely make that connection. I'm going to read a quote. And, Mr. Ellington, if you could respond to this. Sure. This is Tecumseh, mm -hmm. and he is addressing Governor William Henry Harrison in 1810. Since the peace was made, you have killed some of the Shawnees, Winnebago's, Delaware's, and Miami's, and you have taken our lands from us. And I do not see how we can remain at peace with you if you continue to do so. You endeavor to make distinctions. You wish to prevent the Indians to do as they wish them, to unite and let them consider their land as the common property of the whole. What are we mm -hmm. reading here? Okay, so what we're reading is literally an address from uh, Tecumseh, who was a Shawnee leader, to a territorial governor, William Henry Harrison, in 1810. Harrison will later, of course, become president of the United States in 1840. And so what, what we have in this um, quote that you read is a primary source Excerpt. It's very much the kind of documents, a kind of document that students will see on the AP U.S. History exam. Most parts of the AP exam, the multiple choice, the short answer, and the document-based essay question, which together that's about 80 to 85 percent of the exam, will contain these kinds of document excerpts. And students aren't necessarily expected to have read those documents ahead of time because they don't know what those documents will be. But they are expected to be able to read them for information, be able to think historically about them, and be able to use them to help answer multiple choice questions or to help answer um, a short answer or even a longer essay as a document-based essay question. So in this document, uh, the first thing, of course, is to just identify what Tecumseh is saying. And it's pretty clear that, that Tecumseh is drawing a contrast between the desire for desires he states for he and the Native Americans to have peaceful relations and yet the aggressive policies that Harrison and the territorial government is pursuing in taking their lands. And on the AP U.S. history exam, some of the questions will, will, will ask students to, to identify that content and, and be able to work with it. They'll also be asked to apply the, the thinking historically skills that they've learned in the class. Jason, with that last document, talked about the context, the surrounding events during um, that revolutionary time period with the teapot. We can also look at the context here. It being 1810, the context is the continued westward movement. This is right uh, of, of white settlers, the ongoing conflicts over land, the uh, soon-to-happen War of 1812, and even the Battle of Tippecanoe, which precedes that the year before, in which Harrison's forces attack some of the Shawnee Indians as Tecumseh's moving south, trying to create a confederacy uh, to resist. Another thing that students are asked to do is to, is to think historically by not looking at just context, but looking at some other lenses. One of those lenses is point of view. Point of view is identifying and analyzing the perspective within the document and or the perspective of the author of the document. So in this document, we can do that in a couple of different ways. Students can look at the language, can look at, you know, can contrast terms like peace versus killing and unity versus taking land, and then use that to explain the perspective that's being expressed there. Or students can all, and or students can also focus on the author, on Tecumseh. Hopefully students will remember that he was a Shawnee leader and he was trying to create a confederacy. But even if they don't, students can, can extrapolate from 
the fact that he is Native American, that he's going to represent a certain point of view and a perspective. And if students can tie in that perspective of how Indians viewed the land as how Indians saw the conflict between them with the language and the events of the time period, then students are going to be well prepared to demonstrate a facility with historical thinking on the AP U.S. History exam. Mr. Ellington, I just want to bring in two things that occurred to me, which was, number one, this is 1810, and Tecumseh is writing a letter, I presume in English, to William Henry Harrison, and in that letter he refers to himself as an Indian. Um, Yes. So I just, was that something that that should be noted as well, or am I thinking too hard? Um, That can be noted. but it's it's not it's it's not necessary it's it's not critical it depends on on what the question is asking and and what students are trying to demonstrate um so yes i think students can can highlight that but it's not it's not critical to do that professor stacy want to read another quote to you okay and have you talk about this this is from 1852 mm-hmm. frederick dunton mm-hmm. what To the American slave is your 4th of July. I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license. That's a very powerful document, and it's a powerful speech. Something important about the documents, again, is that students, when they're reviewing a document, especially when they're uh, writing the DBQ, is to look at the source line. Who is the author? When is the author writing or saying what is in the document? And so what you see here is Frederick Douglass, who students should be familiar with and should immediately call to mind the abolitionist movement before the Civil War, and the essential part that Frederick Douglass played in that movement. And so here you have a former enslaved African-American, Frederick Douglass, who um, has become, through the publication of his narrative and through his public speaking, has become a well-known figure for the abolitionist movement to establish that enslaved peoples in the United States were able to promote their own freedom, to argue for it, and most significantly for this document, to situate that desire for freedom within the traditions and the ideals of the United States itself. Now, students may not remember that Douglas is giving this speech in Rochester, New York, where he was invited to give a Fourth of July address by uh, local abolitionists. And so in this regard, students can think about the audience of Douglass's speech. And so it's clear that Douglass is speaking to uh, a white audience who is celebrating the 4th of July, and he is situating that 4th of July within his point of view. And from his point of view, the 4th of July is something radically different than it is for that audience, those white listeners, many of whom were sympathetic to uh, abolition of slavery itself. And from his point of view, the 4th of July celebration is, to ask him to give this address, is a mark of the contradiction that exists within the United States in this period where in the Declaration of Independence there is a statement about universal rights, inalienable rights, and yet at this 4th of July uh, speech that Douglas is forced to give, he is living proof that the nation is not living up to that ideal. So that when students analyze this document, they need to take into account the context, who is speaking, what time period they're speaking, what audience they're speaking to, and what point of view they have in giving that particular address uh, in this case. And this is a full nine years before the start of the Civil War. That's right. It is. But significantly, it, it is situated in a context where we can see um, the rising tensions that will lead to the Civil War. It's two years after the Compromise of 1850, which students will remember was really not much of a compromise and would not last very long. 
It's also being given the uh, same year that uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, H Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel has been published, which is a bestseller, and uh, abolitionists in its argument. And so there is already rising tension by the 1850s, and Douglass's Fourth of July address is one more piece of evidence for that rising tension. All right, Professor Stacy, before we continue our conversation, we've been talking for maybe 20, 30 minutes already. If students are listening to this conversation, are they learning how to take this exam or what some of the, uh, what some of the skills they should have in taking this exam? Well, I think they are. Uh, <laughs> Matt and I are talking about specific skills uh, that uh, students, teachers have been teaching them uh, throughout the last year. And these are skills that are articulated in the curriculum framework for uh, the APUS history exam. Uh, some of these skills being, for example, contextualization, or comparison, or audience, uh, or point of view. Um, so Matt, would you like to jump in sure. here about some of these key words that uh, we're introducing <laughs> or reminding students about? Yeah. Um, any student who's taken uh, APUS history is going to be familiar with what we're talking about. One of the things that Jason and I are trying to do is to, is to model the ability to analyze these documents and think historically because students are going to have to do that on the fly on the AP exam. That's one of the things that makes it so challenging. So, uh, like I said, documents show up on various parts of the AP exam and, and depending on where they're, where they're situated on the exam and what the question is, it, it will influence which, which type of historical thinking that students need to do. But there, there are a couple of different types of historical thinking. Students need to be able to, to, to reason historically by using what I call the three C's, causation, considering the cause and or effect, and we've talked a little bit about that, factors that lead to or that result from, and Jason just mentioned that with the Frederick Douglass speech, um, looking at continuity and change over time and, and seeing how events or developments within a given time period remain relatively static or what forces are, are creating change, and then finally comparing comparing individuals, ideologies, beliefs within and across time periods. In addition, on the document-based essay question, which is the longest of the essay questions on the AP exam, worth about 25% of the exam grade, one of the rubric points that students um, are going to strive to earn is examining the documents the way a historian would. We call that sourcing. And in doing the sourcing, students not only need to understand the document, but then they need the content from it, but then they need to apply one of four different lenses, whether that lens could be the lens of what is the historical situation or what is the context around that document, what events or developments are going on during or right before the time period that help us understand what is being said and why it's being said in that document. The second one is the intended audience. Who is the document for and how does that help us understand what's being said and why it's being said? The third lens is purpose. What is the author attempting to accomplish? What do they want to happen as a result? And then that last one is point of view or perspective. What do we know about this person? What bias is implicit or explicit sometimes in that document? So one of the things that makes a PUS history so challenging is it's a it's a combination of a lot of content and then some very specific skills that students need to be able to demonstrate regularly throughout the exam. So Matt Ellington, given what you just said, it, should students put values into their answers? Uh, should they incorporate modern sensibilities when it comes to history? Or should we try to interpret what Frederick Douglass or Tecumseh was saying in the time? That's a great question. Um, Primarily, this is an exercise in, in making sure that students understand the content and can provide a sound historical interpretation and judgment. So within that, there are areas in which historians debate, such as what are, what are the main causes for the Great Depression, for example? Is it really the, the stock market crash or growing income inequality or um, overproduction, et cetera, et cetera. So there's always room for debate. Now, in terms of their own personal biases, they can bring that in. Um, that's fine. We all have that. And as trained readers, and I've also read for the AP exam, as Jason has, we, we set aside those things because we're, we're grading based on th the understanding of their content 
and based on their ability to create a sound historical argument. So students want to spend most of their time focusing on showing that they can do history. They can interpret these documents. They can apply these historical thinking skills in, in more sophisticated, robust ways. Well, Matt Ellington, before we leave you, this is a, our education department here at C-SPAN sent mm-hmm. out a survey to the students and teachers on their mailing list, mm-hmm. and we asked them, what would you like to ask you to about the <laughs> AP history exam? Okay. And this is Teddy, who goes to St. Albans School here in Washington, D.C. In what ways did the federal government emerge from the Civil War with more powers than it possessed before? And that sounds to me like it would make a great essay question as well. Oh, absolutely. That, 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 that's very much the, the kind of thing that College Board wants students to be able to, to know and, and demonstrate on the exam. And so, great question, Teddy. Um, and I think, so let's just contextualize this just a little bit. The Civil War, as we know, uh, the bloodiest war in American history, hundreds of thousands of people killed. But at the time, neither side, north or south, believed that the war would last years. Both sides believed it would be a short, quick conflict. And so we do see the growth of government power, but it's not a pre-planned growth of government power. It's a growth that happens kind of organically in response to the changing situations within the war. Probably the most obvious um, item that the students might think of would be the Emancipation Proclamation and Lincoln using his authority as a wartime commander to free all of the slaves in the borders, uh, all the slaves in the Confederacy, not the border states, unfortunately. That'll have to wait until the 13th Amendment. But that's so critical because it changes the purpose and the nature of the war from simply preserving the Union to now becoming a war that abolishes slavery. Um, But there are many other ways in which federal government power grows. The war is expensive and costly, so we see the very first income tax passed in 1961 as part of the Revenue Act to to generate revenue. Now, it was only 3% back then, so it's tiny by our standards today, but a, a first. We also see an expansion of executive power. Lincoln will suspend the writ of habeas corpus, which means that thousands of pro-Southern sympathizers will be arrested and detained without trial. There's an increased use of military courts and so-called supervised voting. And so all of those get to the the curtailment of civil liberties during wartime. And even though we've not seen those same civil liberties necessarily um, curtailed in the same way, we have seen in other wars, World War I with the Alien and Sedition Acts, World War II with the internment of Japanese, the War on Terror with the Patriot Act. There, there have regularly been curtailing of civil liberties during wartime. We also see an expansion of federal government power as the uh, South and Democrats are no longer part of Congress, and so Republicans are able to implement a really nationalist agenda with the Homestead Act, which uh, greatly encourages continued Western settlement with federally funded infrastructure, including beginning the Transcontinental Railroad with national banks. Um, and um, all of that kind of stuff. So, a, a, and much bigger spending. The the government is spending about ten times as much during the war as it was before the war. There's also the issuing of paper currency that that banks are forced to accept the greenback. And both sides, the Union and the Confederacy, are also forced to implement the first drafts in American history. The South first, of course, because their manpower is even shorter, but even the North by 1863 is implementing a draft which had never been done before. So we see government expanding its power in several different ways. And then, of course, at the end of the war, um, we see three constitutional amendments, the 13th Amendment, which ends slavery, the 14th Amendment, which grants former slaves and all peoples born in the United States citizenship and due process equal protection under the law, and then the 15th Amendment, which grants black men the right to vote. All of those amendments are part of Reconstruction, the attempt by the federal government to remake the South. And even though that falls short, it does lay a foundation for future changes that we see come to fruition with the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And and if I could just add to that, Peter, um, I, 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 I would encourage students to look closely regarding the growth of federal power after the Civil War at the 14th Amendment. It's, while the 13th Amendment is historically significant in enormous ways, and while the 15th Amendment, uh, granting of the uh, right to vote for uh, black men, is likewise very significant, the 14th Amendment, which places in the hands of the federal government 
the power to protect civil rights is going to uh, expand federal power in the 20th century in ways that perhaps were not necessarily even envisioned by the authors of the 14th Amendment, specifically through um, not only civil rights reform uh, in the 20th century, but even the ways in which, for example, the 14th Amendment uh, is used uh, to uh, protect um, uh, business, corporations uh, that are uh, defined by the federal courts as uh, individuals and so uh, have some uh, federal protection under the 14th Amendment as well. It's, it has some uh, unforeseen uh, applications uh, well after the Civil War and certainly even after uh, Reconstruction uh, and, and into the 20th century. Well, you talked about the federal government and Teddy's question was about the federal government expanding, but the nation was also expanding in the post-war period. We have a chart we want to show you. This is a look at the U.S. workforce, 1870 to 1900. And you can see there in 1870, a majority of people were involved in agriculture. And by 1900, that had shrunk. But another one of the facts, Professor Stacy, in here, is that the population was growing. So even though the percentage had shrunk, the population working in agriculture had basically stayed the same. That's right, and this is a very uh, useful document for students, and uh, similar documents that are charts or graphs could appear in the multiple choice questions as stimuli that uh, questions then will be asked uh, from, so that students will have to interpret them. And this comes in the middle of that gilded age, that big time period I talked about earlier today, that's often very difficult for students to wrap their head around because there are so many enormous economic, social, uh, and cultural changes going on. And here you see in this 30-year period uh, by these uh, two um, uh, pie charts, the shift in the American economy from uh, um, an agricultural economy to uh, an industrial economy. And while agriculture still dominates, as you noted, it is a shrinking sector of the American workforce. And so here we can apply some of the historical thinking skills that Matt and I talked about. For example, causation. What's some of the causation of this expanding industrial workforce or the expansion of trade? And that part of that causation is the shift in the American economy from an agricultural to an industrial economy. Uh, likewise, we can see this, we can apply the, the skill of uh, continuity and change. What are some factors that say, stay the same? What are some factors that are changing in this period? And as you noted, the United States is, continues to be an agricultural economy, while at the same time, the proportion of the workforce that is agricultural is shrinking, and it's being taken up uh, by the industrial workforce. Well, Lucy, who attends El Dorado High School in Placentia, New California, I think, it, how close is that to you in Chino Hills, Mr. Um, Ellington? You said Placentia? Yes. Oh, very close, actually. Well, um, just a stone's throw. Well, Lucy's yeah. question is, who is our most important president from the Gilded Age to remember? Yeah, boy, that's a... <laughs> That's quite a question. When I used to teach this class, we used to call the Gilded Age presidents the five dwarves because three out of the five of them had these long beards. And they all sort of run together in this long, complicated time period. Um, I, I would say, uh, Lucy, probably the most important one uh, would be Grover Cleveland. And uh, I would suggest that Grover Cleveland is the most important remember, uh, to remember because of two significant events that are symbolic of changes that are happening and changes are, that are to come. Um, as you know, Grover Cleveland served two non-consecutive terms. So Benjamin Harrison is president in between. So Cleveland serves one term, he's out, and then he comes back again after Benjamin uh, Harrison. And the, during his first term, we see the passage of the Interstate Commerce Act, uh, which creates the Interstate Commerce Commission, supported by both parties, passed overwhelmingly by Congress. And it is the first uh, federal uh, commission whose job is to uh, regulate um, the national economy, uh, specifically in terms of trade, specifically to prevent railroads 
from offering rebates to uh, larger um, industries that are moving materials so they can move those materials cheaper than the smaller industries. And it's really an attempt to prevent the creation of monopolies and trusts. And we're going to see after Cleveland a continued growth of the attempt by the federal government to regulate the economy specifically to prevent the creation of monopolies as we move into the um, um, uh, progressive era uh, after the Gilded Age. Uh, during his second term, another significant event uh, in 1894 is the Pullman Strike. And you probably remember the Pullman Strike uh, from your classes where uh, in uh, the Pullman uh, train car manufacturer in Chicago, Illinois, um, uh, a large strike began there that eventually spread nationwide. The American Railway Union uh, unionized the railway workers under Eugene Debs, and they effectively stopped all railroad transportation during this strike in 94. And Cleveland eventually called in federal troops. And the argument was because that strike uh, prevented interstate commerce, uh, it broke federal law, and it was under the federal government's purview to break that strike. So here we see Cleveland uh, in his first term supporting regulation, and in his second term really um, supporting business uh, and struggling with uh, labor activism and labor rights. And those two uh, different federal approaches to regulating the economy, labor rights, uh, anti-monopoly legislation, promoting general prosperity, promoting the growth of the economy, while at the same time trying to promote small businesses or labor rights, those are going to be struggles uh, throughout the late 19th century, the Gilded Age, and certainly into the 20th century. So I would say Grover Cleveland, because of what these two examples uh, foresee coming uh, in the future. Matt Ellington, do you agree with him? Um, I do, actually. I, I think Grover Cleveland is a, a great choice. Um, but I also agree with, with the characterization of the, you know, the, the five dwarves, or I call them the forgettable presidents. And so to the students out there who right now don't remember Grover Cleveland or are thinking, wait, I need to know all of these presidents. I need to go back to, to Hayes and Garfield and Arthur and, you know, Cleveland and Harrison. Um, no, you don't, right? Uh, as long as you understand some of the bigger trends uh, industrialization, uh, the continued movement west, and the eventual closing of the frontier, the the, the political gridlock uh, that ends up taking place, the, the emergence of the populist movement, some of those kinds of things, and you can you can bring some specifics to bear. It's not necessary to remember every single one of the forty-five U.S. presidents and every you know main event that they did, though it's helpful. Well, here at American History TV and at C-SPAN, we spend a lot of time looking at the individual presidents and what happened during their tenures. Mm -hmm. Is that important? Does, do we give too much to a president and, and what he has done? Um, possibly. I mean, I, I think that so much is outside of a president's control. Presidents have agendas they campaign on. Obviously, they have to work with Congress, which has become increasingly more difficult in, in recent years. Um, but, but in history, and Jason can speak to this, there are oftentimes larger forces at play that, that start well before a presidency and continue uh, farther on, which is one of the things that makes you know looking at, at recent history so challenging because you oftentimes need the perspective of years or decades to really see and sift out what happened and what's causing these larger changes. And so I love political history, and, and I can name all 45 presidents, and, and I do cover these presidents in my class. But for students that are a little bit overwhelmed with that, keeping every single president straight is not critical on the APUS history exam, as long as they have a bigger picture understanding. And a reminder, there are 55 multiple choice questions on the AP history exam, three mm -hmm. short answer questions one document-based question, and one long essay. Yep. Well, unfortunately, we're getting short on time, so we're going to move into more modern history. Um, and I want to read a couple of quotes, and we'll start with you then, Professor Stacy. Gloria Steinem, May 6, 1970. I have been excluded from professional groups, writing assignments on so-called unfeminine subjects, 
such as politics. I have been denied a society in which women are encouraged or even allowed to think of themselves. 1972, Phyllis Schlafly, What's Wrong with Equal Rights for Women? Our respect for the family as the basic unit of society, which is ingrained in the laws and customs of our Judeo-Christian civilization, is the greatest single achievement in the entire history of women's rights. Early 70s, two disparate points of view. Professor Stacy. Well, first of all, let's apply some of the skills that students are going to have to use on the AP test to these documents. The first that immediately comes to mind, as you notice, Peter, is comparison. Immediately we can see the contrasts and even some similarities between these two documents. If we start with the similarities, both of them are talking about the women's rights movement of the early uh, 1970s. Uh, Both of them are talking about women in particular. However, also with comparison, both have a very different perspective on those rights. And so we have Gloria Steinem, a significant figure in second wave feminism, uh, coming out of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. And here she is arguing for equal rights for women in terms of the workplace and opportunity. Whereas uh, Phyllis Schlafly, uh, coming out of the same era, but a movement that historians generally now would call the New Right, uh, really beginning in the 1950s, but coming to a kind of national consciousness in 1964 with the Barry Goldwater campaign. And here we have uh, Phyllis Schlafly arguing from a very different perspective, that uh, women, grounded in their roles as mothers in the family and as she says in a Judeo-Christian framework um, uh, acquire all of their uh, place in in society their status um, and even their equality uh, different than men uh, because of those differences uh, as women and so again within two years of each other we've got through comparison, a sense of the debate regarding the women's movement uh, during this period. Um, but another thing we can do when we, when we look at these two documents is to apply contextualization. So that as students are probably aware, uh, 1970 and 1972 are within the context of all the social changes that are happening during the 1960s. And those social changes are not only on the left, the new left, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and the counterculture, but there are also changes happening on the political right in this country. Uh, The advent of the new right, the Barry Goldwater campaign in 1964, and with Phyllis Schlafly here, the uh, reaction against the Equal Rights Amendment. And so both of these statements about women's rights are coming within the context of these rising political movements, the new left and the new right, that will continue to shape political and social discourse through the 1970s and 1980s. And in fact, I think a lot of historians would argue continue to shape our times today. Matt Ellington, when is the AP U.S. History exam given? Do you have to be present? Can you take it online? Can people who are just interested take it as well as high school students? Great question. The AP U.S. History exam this year will be Friday, May 6th, uh, 2022. It's given in the morning, local time, 8 or 8.30, uh, depending on, on, on the proctor and how that works. Uh, student, people must sign up for it. It is a, a, an exam that's uh, given to high school students, so I don't think anybody can come in off the street to take the uh, AP U.S. History exam. Most AP U.S. History exam takers are in, currently enrolled in the course. So technically that's not a requirement. Uh, a senior who took the course the previous year or somebody who took the course during summer or somebody who just loves history and wants to challenge themselves can take the, can take the exam as well. There is a makeup date uh, on Wednesday, May 18th for people who have conflicts or if some kind of an emergency arises. Um, and then was there another question? Is it in person asked? or can you take yes. it online? No. Um, well, I think College Board is allowing some accommodations, but by and large, this is uh, this year they've returned primarily to an in-person exam. In the last couple of years, with with the COVID nineteen crisis, the exam was digital. Two years ago, it was even uh, it was even shortened greatly. But this year, as most schools are back, um, the expectation is that students will take it online, or students will take it in person, a traditional 
pen and paper test that's about a three hour and 15 minute exercise. Well, Mr. Ellington, when we began this, we looked at some of the time periods that are mm -hmm. used uh, to help contextualize history. Once again, 80% of the grading is from 1754 to 1980, correct? Yes. And then the earlier periods each account for about 5, 8% or so? Is correct. That correct? Correct. Uh, units 1 and 9 are 4 to 6%, and then unit 2 is a little bit more. That's a 6 to 8%, and so the other units are all about 10 to 16 or 10 to 17%. College Board gives themselves a little bit of flexibility because it's hard to, to nail the percentages exactly, but that, that roughly gives us 80-plus uh, percent on 1754 to 1980. Matt Ellington and Jason Stacy are co-authors of this book, Fabric of a Nation, a Brief History with Skills and Sources for the AP U.S. History course. And here are some last-minute review tips that they give. Review key concepts and rubrics. Practice as much as you can and be confident and trust yourself. Professor Stacy, what's a rubric? <laughs> uh, a rubric is a set of standards uh, with each uh, level of success uh, defined um, and usually assigned a point value. So let's say there are five or six standards that you want a student to um, achieve. Uh, and then within each one of those standards, you would have um, an evaluatory category like meets expectations, does not meet expectations, exceeds expectations. And then each one of those um, evaluative categories would be uh, given a point value. Uh, and there are different kinds of rubrics. The College Board has their own. Uh, particular rubrics uh, for evaluating the AP exam, and there's different rubrics for the DBQs and LEQs and SAQs uh, and such. Matt, do you want to speak to the? Yeah, I, the I'd love I'd love to to jump in here. So. Um, the suggestion for students to review key concepts, of course, is to make sure that they understand the material. But then College Board has two specific rubrics, one for the document-based question, one for the long essay question. And those, those rubrics are essentially checklists of tasks that students must complete, such as they must have a thesis, they must contextualize, they must use a certain number of documents and, and have it support their argument, bring in outside information, those kinds of things. And so the suggestion to students is that students use the rubrics, which they won't have, but they should be familiar with, and, and they will be summarized in the instructions on the exam as a mental checklist to make sure that as they're writing a good essay that's answering the question, that they're also accomplishing those tasks. And sometimes when students run short of time on an essay or they're overwhelmed, they can even use the rubrics to their advantage to say, okay, maybe I, I, I don't know what to do with you know two of these documents, and so I can't meet the rubric point for using six documents, but I can easily meet the rubric point for using three documents. So I'll use three or four of the seven documents and then spend additional time trying to complete the other tasks as I write my essay. So, so students who are prepared and are comfortable with the rubrics can use those to their advantage to maximize their score on the APOS history exam. Matt Ellington is an AP history teacher at Ruben Ayala High School in Chino Hills, California. Jason Stacy is a history professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Gentlemen, thank you for helping us understand the U.S. History AP exam a little bit more, and hopefully for helping some of the students out there. Thanks, Peter. Good luck, everyone. Thank you, Peter.